0: Good evening and welcome to the National Library, everybody. I'm Maureen Dupre, one of the executive team here at the library, and we're delighted to welcome to you this evening to what we hope will be a wonderful event. Um, As we begin, uh, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet and this beautiful building is located and we're so proud to call our home. I'd also like to acknowledge any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders that may be with us today and to pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. So this evening, once upon a time, uh, not so long ago, March was recognised, as many, as many of you would know, as the Women's History Month. Um, in recent years, International Women's Day has established itself as a real presence in our life on the 1st of March, and here at the National Library, we are committed and delighted to be collecting, preserving and sharing the histories and creativity and achievements of Australian women. So this evening, we're actually delighted to welcome, and I think it might be welcome back, I think, yes. Um, Claire Wright to the library, um, Associate Professor in History at La Trobe University. Claire, as many of you would know, is an award winning historian and author who has worked as an academic, a political speech writer, histo- historical, as I nearly said, hysterical, and that would not be good, would it? <laughs> So um, I'll correct that with a historical consultant and a radio and television broadcaster. Her book, The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka, won the 2014 Stella Prize and the 2014 NIB Award for Literature and was shortlisted for many other awards. In her most recent book, Your Daughters of Freedom, Claire Brigham brings a lifetime uh, brings to life a time when Australian democracy was the envy of the world and the standard bearer of progress in a bright new century. Hmm, be interesting to get some commentary on things now but I'll probably leave that to, to Genevieve to do. So joining Claire this evening, many of you will know um, and I think many of us quite love and I feel like I've, my children have grown up with you a little bit I think <laughs> on the radio over the years. It's uh, Genevieve Jacobs who's always a delight to have here at the library and will be leading us through what I hope is a wonderfully entertaining conversation with Claire this evening. So please join me in welcoming both Genevieve and Claire.
1: Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for the warm welcome. It is always a wonderful pleasure to be here at the National Library and especially to speak again mm. with historian Dr. Claire Wright. I think we were here actually last about 12 months ago when the Bessie Rishbeeth. Exhibition was on upstairs, upstairs of her papers. The yeah, which was wonderful. We had a lovely, a lovely chat then, and here we are again. With the finished product, this this marvellous book, You Daughters of Freedom. What a stirring, stirring title. It's <laughs> um it's it's from a letter to Vita Goldstein, mm. and we'll come to that a little later on. But at the centre of this book, a decade of absolutely tumultuous change in the battle for women's rights as full and equal voting citizens, Mm. a battle in which Australia was at the forefront and whose leaders inspired and showed the way for those elsewhere. Now, we will have about 10 or 15 minutes for questions at the end, and I feel absolutely sure that you'll have some crackers, given the subject matter of this arguably slightly forgotten but absolutely Mm. glorious part of our history. When I do call for questions if you would just wait until the microphone gets to you so that we can make sure everyone hears and particularly with regard to those who may have hearing devices but um uh, Claire good evening hi how are you I'm I'm well we have just been having a very good natter outside yes, in the have. green room so <laughs> um, a starting point for mm. this book is actually just up the hill Mm -hmm. at Parliament House. I just wanted you to begin Mm -hmm. with um, the role that a a very slightly tipsy wander through the Mm -hmm. halls of Parley played in what's turned into
2: a very significant tome. Tell me what you were doing up there and what you found. I've actually just come from up there at Parliament House this afternoon. I've spent another afternoon uh, up there um, in in front of this same object that I did find on that slightly tipsy day. I'm not (laughs) tipsy today, I'll just have you know. (laughs) Uh, so, I was at Parliament House, this is a few years back now uh, because I had written a documentary for the ABC called The War That Changed Us and it was about Australia's role in World War I and uh, there was a screening of it in a theatre much like this that's in Parliament House hence the champagne, because it was the um, the launch and uh, and I was a little bit drunk, not just on champagne, but kind of the um, applause and accolades of the evening. And I sort of walked away to centre myself a, a little bit and I wandered off and found myself in the Prime Minister's gallery. And uh, if you know that layout of Parliament House well, you'll know that that is just in the sort of central area um, between the reps and the, and the Senate. And I was wandering along, looking at our various Prime Ministers, and, uh, and there was a little corridor, and uh, I turned off the little corridor, being a curious type that always likes to sort of go down rabbit holes. Went off uh, down the corridor, and there was I was struck by this most extraordinary uh, artwork that I had never seen before, didn't know existed. If I did know existed, I'd certainly forgot about it. And I was really just bowled over by it. And... Um, and there were two things that really struck me. Firstly, just how beautiful it was. And secondly, that as uh, a feminist historian, um, firstly, and as an Australian even, um, that I didn't know about it and, I, and, and, and that I didn't uh, recognise it. And the, thing, the, the, the item that I'm talking about is the women's suffrage banner that was painted by Dora Meeson Coates. And there's a little I- information panel on the side of it. And the information that was given was, was not enough for me. I was hungry to know more about it. I was hungry to dissect not only how this extraordinary material item had come into being, what its story was, the story of the banner itself, but also to try to understand why um, I didn't know about it, uh, that, that, you just said, arguably forgotten area mm. of history. I don't think there's anything arguable, mm. arguable about it. I think that it's a lay-down that this, is th- this era, we're talking about the Federation era, that decade and a half before World War I that that era is a forgotten era in our, um, in our national historical consciousness and so I wanted to find out more about the banner itself, about the woman who painted this extraordinary thing and and to understand my own ignorance um, as a way in a sense of making up for it. So, so
1: let's set the scene here. Australia has begun to find its feet as a, a, a nation, nascent nation, we're prosperous enough for there to be room for some good solid Mm -hmm. arguments about what kind of country we want to be. Mm. But you describe really sharply at the very beginning of the book what the consequences are of women not having the vote, what it means Mm.
2: for ordinary Mm. women in their everyday Mm. lives Mm. that they are not allowed to vote. Okay. So, so let me explain what the banner is. Um, otherwise, none of this is really going to make sense how we get to that, if, we, if I don't tell you what the banner is. So the banner, for those of you who don't know it, can I have a, just a slight show of hands of people who know the banner that I'm talking about? Great. What a good Canberrans I you I know, are. good Canberrans. <laughs> okay, it's probably not quite um, a representative sample um, of Australians. But um, so, so the banner, the women's suffrage banner, shows um, Mother Britannia, and daughter uh, Minerva, uh, representing Britain and Australia. Daughter Minerva reaching up to Mother Britannia, who's looking off into the distance, haughty, detached, and daughter Minerva um, almost pleading with her. And across the top of the the banner, it says, Commonwealth of Australia, trust the women mother as I have done. So the reference there is that Australia um, had given women the vote, or that's actually not the phrase I like to use, Australian women had won the vote, a much more active um, uh, way to describe that decades and decades of struggle for the enfranchisement. And they had done so well in advance of the rest of the world, including Britain, the, 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 the neighbour who they were most concerned to influence their political development because they felt they were part of the imperial family as the uh, allegorical nature of the mother and daughter in the painting shows, and that Australian women felt that they had a duty and an obligation to help their, um, what they called, less fortunate British sisters. And so, in order to tell that story, the story that I discovered the banner was about, um, I, I realised that um, what I needed to do was to go back and tell the story of how Australian women had actually won the vote in the first place, because it's not um, a familiar enough part of our, our own history for me to take um, to assume that people understand what that fight was about. So that takes us to your question roundabout way. So. Women didn't just want the vote because it was a matter of um, political equality and justice. That was one reason, that kind of what you might call that more um, uh, an aspect of political philosophy, you know, that John Stuart Mill had had written on, on liberty, on the subjugation of women. So it was, you know, a tenant of liberal philosophy in the 19th century that women should be enfranchised as a, a matter of equality. But for for most women, and certainly for the women who were the campaigners for the vote, it went beyond it being, um, you know, symbolic or philosophical. The reason women wanted the vote was because the condition under which most women lived, in fact all women lived, to to one extreme or another, you know, we're fond of talking about spectrums these days, and you could put womanhood on a spectrum um, between privileged and just downright oppressed and degraded and but women were, lived along that spectrum And but for all of them they were subject to uh, legal and political and economic and social and cultural levels of discrimination mm-hmm. and so for example um, women didn't have, a, have um, uh, custody over their own children. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they couldn't get a bank loan. Um, they, uh, only a very few of them could get any form of education. And I'm talking now ab- about the women who were on the more privileged end of the spectrum. Now if we got to the, c- the condition of working class women and, um, and women who lived under um, extreme um, levels of poverty and then just circumstances like, a-, a-, a circumstance that I talk about in the book, a woman who gets pregnant, a- a- an unmarried woman who gets pregnant to a fella. Now, a woman in the 19th century for whom that happened to was a fallen woman. Essentially, her life was over. She didn't have access to any way of getting rid of the baby um, or aborting that, um, that pregnancy that wasn't safe. And her reputation was gone. She wouldn't be employed anymore. And, you know, this was the situation for so many women. So, this um, pyramid of circumstances of women's. Um, degradation led women who were in a more privileged position to want to change that situation and they couldn't change the conditions of their daily lives because they had no power to do so because they didn't have the vote. Mm. Mm. So the vote was, as Vida Goldstein, the leader of the Australian suffrage movement said, the right that covered all other rights. Mm. That until you had that ability to influence the political process, there was nothing that... We, women were always going to be in chains, mm. that they were always going to, to live under one level of slavery or bondage or another. Mm. And so that is why the vote was such a precious commodity and, and why women laid down their lives for it. Mm. So we've got, we've got in this book
1: both the Australian struggle, that victory, and then what happens... Mm-hmm internationally. Five outstanding Mm -hmm. women, Vita Goldstein, Nellie Martell, Dora Montefiore, Muriel Mattis and Dora Mm Mason-Coates. Very different in their characters, Mm -hmm. Vita Goldstein's portrayed as having this sort of rather magnificent womanliness about her and and Nellie Martell, who's also a huge campaigner, annoys the living daylights out of almost everyone she comes across. There's a headline in The Truth bellowing, who is this Martell woman? (laughs) Which is one of the great headlines of all time probably if you were that Martell woman. But were they radicals? How, how transgressive was the, the battle mm. they fought here in this
2: burgeoning country? Mm. Well, I, it's a really interesting question. And I think um, the, the fact that they were rebels, that they were transgressive, can be evidenced by the fact that there was so much hostility and opposition to them. Mm. Uh, you know, the, these women, if they were living today, would be trolled they would be called um, the, the fright bats. Mm-hmm. You know, th- they would be the ones that people would be, tr- be like, our, like the women who are um, destroying the joint, who are pushing up against uh, the, 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 still the boundaries that women live um, under today, uh, women who do that, are viciously attacked and and their voices are attempted to be shut down. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happened to, the, to these women. So they were... Uh, one of the reasons that um, I wanted to follow the lives of five separate characters and not say do a biography of Vida Goldstein or just follow one one other single character through, was to show the breadth of the movement, that, they, that, that, they, that women who fought for suffrage, firstly, it's very important to realise that it was a collective movement. The struggle was uh, one of collectivity of women, um, as the British suffragettes, the phrase they like to use, fighting shoulder to shoulder. Mm. And, and in Britain in particular, that meant across class, mm. that women from the factories and from the mills were there on the streets, uh, with women who had never been out of their parlours before and, and that they were taken to the streets together in, in mass demonstration. So it was really important to show that, that these victories were not achieved by individuals and that's often the problem with um, writing history is that the focus on one single person in in biography makes it seem like change happens because you have an individual single catalyst, Um, whereas um, I am a great believer, and I think history does bear this out, uh, that, that, um, that real change, real progress is made through collective struggle. And I think uh, I, cu- I couldn't follow every single woman, obviously, who was part of this movement, but it was important to showcase a number of them. And also to show that they were very different, mm-hmm. that, n- that, that they, there was no type, in mm-hmm. a sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- and, and I think that by following these characters through, and as you'll know, it's a work of narrative nonfiction. we, we follow their stories um, and we follow it in their footsteps because I write, the, the way that I write is to write from the primary sources up. And, uh, and and very much believing that um, if a character themselves doesn't know what's going to happen next, then the audience shouldn't know either. So I'm not writing with the benefit of hindsight. We're seeing it through those character's eyes. And, and I think that brings you much closer to, to that person and you feel a sense of, of solidarity and, and, and empathy with them, even if... Nellie Martell drives you completely bonkers, <laughs> um, which at times she does. And, uh, and you know, but, but that was part of her method. Mm. Um, that was part of her transgression. And part of all of these women's transgression, in a way, was that they weren't doing what was expected of women to do. They weren't behaving nicely. They weren't uh, keeping... Uh, to themselves. They weren't bridling their tongues. They were speaking out, they were acting out spectacularly mm. as we see in some of the, the later episodes. They were making spectacles of themselves literally and this went against all of the mores of 19th century and Victorian femininity and it is really part, uh, part and parcel of the burgeoning of the modern woman, the 20th century woman.
1: Although there are some uh, reading this there are some some notes which are quite odd for us, mm-hmm. understanding 21st mm-hmm. century fem, uh, feminism. Yes, It's quite striking to read how gendered the activist arguments could be. For example, you get a lot of stuff about women needing to clean up the mess of men, mm. that women in parliament would campaign for purity. We hear later, for example, in the English fight um, about the point of the struggle being to incorporate the glorious responsibilities and the deep suffering of motherhood mm. into the idea of mm. citizenship. Mm. And then there's this sort of cult of the mother that mm-hmm. runs quite deeply through the arguments. Mm. I mean, interesting, when Vita Goldstein, for example, and Muriel Matters, you know, unmarried at that time, childless, and very much counter the culture, but just unpack for us some of the ideas that were running through this struggle that are a little
2: unexpected for women today. I'm so glad that you raised that, because it is, it is one of, uh, I think, the really important things about writing history is that you, you can't see people in, of the past as us with funny clothes on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You you really have to get into their minds and understand the context for their actions. And as you say, the one thing that is probably run rubs you up the most mm. the modern woman the most up the wrong way um, is is this idea of the the essence and uh the, the essential nature of womanhood mm. and it's very much part of the argument for why women should get the vote in the first place. Um, I, you know it's interesting ref- to reflect on, um, it, it's, I'm going back to my women's studies courses of, of university now, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, um, when they used to um, call it um, difference feminism and equality feminism. So these women, this first, first wave of feminism, they're the difference feminists. They believed that women were essentially different from men. And it was those, the qualities that were inherent in women, and particularly in their roles as mothers, that qualified them in certain ways for the vote. And the reason that it was important to politically empower women was not only so that they could change the conditions of their own daily lives, but so that they could change the world. And they believed that the world was in a mess. And that, that war and greed and poverty and social ills like prostitution and drunkenness and gambling and other forms of vice, that all of these um, ills of the world could be sheeted home to the feet of men because men controlled things and look what a mess they'd made of it. <laughs> and that just as women cleaned up their homes, and 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 tidied up after men in the home, so they would tidy up the world, and they literally considered themselves to be the mothers of the world or the homemakers of the world, and they also saw that quite literally in a place like Australia, where um, Australia was the first country in the world, and this is the the basis for its preeminence and and, and why it wanted to take its message forward the first country in the world to not only give women the right to vote, but also the right to stand for parliament. And um, white women, and maybe we'll talk about that Mm -hmm. later. And um, New Zealand gave women the right to vote in in 1893, but not the right to stand for parliament until 1919. And Australian women got those twin rights, making them the political equals of white men. And why that was important in the Australian context was because women also believed that it was their, their, their um, right, but most importantly their responsibility, to go into parliament and clean up the mess of the parliamentarians as well. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> that worked, didn't it? <laughs> and and so, so this notion of, of purity, um, that women embody purity and that they were going to purify the world and indeed purify politics is incredibly important to the mindset of the suffragists and it 's integral if you can you, if you show the front of the book so um, this mimics uh, the idea of the banner and women wearing um, these in demonstrations and these are the colours that we most readily associate now with the suffrage movement. They actually were the colours of Emmeline Pankhurst's Mm. suffragette organisation in Britain, um, the WSPU, the Women's Social and Political Union, which various of the Australian women went over and joined and worked for. And the colours represent, white, purple and green represent, uh, white is purity. Uh, green is hope and purple is courage and the book is structured into those three mm. sections under those titles. So the white is purity and that stands for, th- for the purifying nature of women's work and particularly another thing that we're kind of uncomfortable with today as well is the idea of spirituality mm. and that women consider themselves to be on a spiritually higher plane than men mm. uh, and that in order to have uh, a real... in that the part of the mission of the 20th century was going to have a more enlightened future, that that lightening process, quite literally whitening the world, was going to happen through women's spiritual um, advancement. And then, you know, don't get me started on, on the way in which whiteness is very literally about racial purity well, let's, as well. let's just mention that briefly. All right, briefly, get me because, started on yeah, that. Let, let me get you started <laughs> on it
1: because uh, there are plenty of questions about which women, about race and class. That that does come mm-hmm. into this debate, and I, I do want to give us plenty of time to talk about mm-hmm. what happened in England, yes. which is very dramatic and very exciting. But just briefly, mm-hmm. this idea about which women yes. could vote.
2: Okay, so uh, it's one of the difficulties of writing uh, about um, a- and wanting to 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 raise the profile of these women and in a sense claim them as heroes for our times. Mm-hmm. And in, in certainly to claim them as, as heroes of our nation. Women who did so much for nation building uh, as I, I really um, document in the book that these women have been left out of the story of nation building in Australia. It, the way that there's that story of federation, um, of our founding fathers, has been written and if you go to Parliament House and you look at the at the, the gallery that has Tom Roberts' big picture and all of the people who are uh, the portraits of the people who were associated with that nation building era federation, all the fellas. Whereas women were actually crucial um, in their campaigning, in their legwork, in their petitioning to the nation becoming into existence in the first place. And also writing women's suffrage into the Constitution, Mm. uh, essentially. It's not in those words, but we tell the story of of how that happened. Now, you know, I want to bring that to prominence, and because I think that it is really important to tell that story of the way that feminism and federalism were intertwined. This isn't women's history, I'm not writing women's history. I'm writing national history, Mm. I'm writing political history. And until we see those two things as one, (laughs) women's history is, or, or the story of what women have done in their achievements is always going to be seen as being a footnote, mm-hmm. something kind of picturesque and niche, but mm-hmm. not actually central to who we are. So that's part of uh, of the story that I tell. At the same time, it has to be qualified mm-hmm. by the fact that the Franchise Act that gave Australian women this world leading edge uh, that gave them rights that no other women in the world had, that same piece of legislation disenfranchised all indigenous people. Yep. That that some indigenous people had had the vote prior to that, but the way the Franchise Act was very deliberately written and, um, and it makes for very difficult reading to go through those passages of Hansard where the parliamentarians were debating Essentially, who was going to be in and who was going to be out of this nation, who was going to belong and who was going to be insiders and who were going to be outsiders. And the language that they use to justify why indigenous people didn't deserve to be included as citizens in this nation is very difficult to hear to modern ears. And I'm not going to repeat it tonight, but you can read it in the book. Um, Warning to our politicians. Hansard is there. <laughs> Historians in a 100 years time will mark you responsible <laughs> for the things that you say because we're nerds and we read this stuff. Hmm. And, and these, these people, I, I give them uh, enough rope. So the very same legislation that took gender out of the equation in terms of national belonging inserted race as a qualification and as we know um, in, in hindsight the, the people at the time didn't um, it would it would take until the 1960s before uh, indigenous people got their voting rights back and were indeed counted and you know it, it has to be said that the women who were v- were fighting for their own rights the white women who were fighting for their own rights at this particular time were not fighting for their indigenous sisters rights they were far more interested in helping their white british Counterparts than they were in any way with their indigenous sisters, but this does take
1: us nicely to the international mm-hmm. scenario because the entire battle that had gone on here in Australia was viewed as the kind of most extraordinary social experiment. There was great astonishment that the progress was made not in the US, not in Europe, but but here in Australia, and. Consequently, women in other places look to us mm. for leadership, which is a fascinating thing to conjure with because most of us will have grown up knowing the name of the Pankhursts, for example, knowing the story of you know, the, the suffragettes throwing themselves beneath the king's horse and so on and so forth. But in fact, mm. it was women like Vida and her cohort who had blazed the trail and they were seen as the experienced leaders,
2: the ones who had inspiration to give. Genevieve, this was the most fascinating... Discovery, I think, for me in the archives, um, that this you know it, um, journey that wanting to understand more about Dora Meeson Coates's beautiful banner ended up taking me on. the the the, the realization that Australia was so much in the spotlight that it was so much admired by the rest of the world. That Americans reported in their daily newspapers what was going on down here that when the franchise Act was passed, there were headlines emblazoned across you know the New York Times and the Boston Globe eight hundred thousand Australian women enfranchised yeah. this This was um, this was news and this was news that every country around the world wanted to hear about because they all were, particu- certainly in Western nations, this is a European uh, situation and an American situation and in, and in some Asian countries as well at this point in time, they were all dealing with what they called the woman question. Um, it's you know a bit like the Liberal Party and their woman problem, <laughs> although most of us actually do think they've got a man problem. but. It was it was called the woman question, and just as the nineteenth century had been uh, that that the political movements of the nineteenth century had been about dealing with the problem of labour and the extending the franchise for unpropertied men, this period at the turn of the twentieth century was all about the issue of how to deal with this clarion call coming from women all over that it was their time and their time was now and they were making these demands upon the system that they lived under and the governments that ruled them and so the fact that Australia had come up with this solution Mm -hmm. uh, which all of the anti-suffrage arguments up to to this time and for decades already um, up until the turn of the 20th century had been about you know, they, they were the kind of the sky's going to fall arguments. Women will stop wanting to have babies. They'll stop getting married. They will become unsexed. This was the term that we used, by which they meant they will become manly women. Mm-hmm. Um, they will stop having uh, their lovely feminine attributes. Mm-hmm. They, uh, there will be trouble and discord within households. These were all that, that, really the kind of, it was going to be a social catastrophe if mm-hmm. women voted. And Australia was there to prove that, one, all of the, the um, prophecies of doom had not happened, and two, they were Australia was very proud of all the achievements that had been made, the progress that had been made, as a result of women getting the vote. And they were able to point to those things to the introduction of the maternity allowance, to pure food laws, to the raising of the age of consent, things that women had been advocating and trying to push through parliaments around the world for decades, suddenly in Australia had come to fruition because women were now voters, they now had power. Mm. And so the rest of the world had their eyes trained on Australia and they were watching, and, and this was the thing that I absolutely found so flabbergasting, Australian knew it, and they were proud of it. Mm. Mm-hmm. We were proud as a nation before World War I, before anything happened on any beach in Gallipoli, where we supposedly mm. we proved ourselves on the international stage mm. that 's what we 're always told, and why we 're told that Gallipoli is the birth of the nation. We were already well proud of ourselves and felt that we had proved ourselves on the stage, and that we were as people called us at the time, the pacemakers of the world. Mm. And that's an extraordinary thing to reflect on, given that we have lost all sense of ourselves as leaders mm. in an international sense, and that we also have become so accustomed to the, well, lay down Mazaire historical lie that Gallipoli was the birth of the nation. And, and in fact, if
1: you want a summer of revolution, 1908... Mm-hmm in London, mm-hmm. with Australian women at the absolute forefront of this tumultuous, enormous movement for women's suffrage. Not only Dora Mason-Coates' beautiful banner, but Nellie Martell, mm-hmm. who stands on her feet in front of half a million, half people, a million people, in people in Hyde, Hyde Park. Park. Half a million people for the women's vote. That, that is the most extraordinary thing to conjure with. Muriel Matters, who wasn't at Hyde Park but created a, a huge global story of her own by chaining herself to the iron grills in the Houses of Parliament, secreting an enormous chain under her dress. Um, they're, they're spectacular stories because they're filled with courage and ingenuity, mm. but as you say, also spectacular leadership. And mm. there was no doubt that the Australian women would be at the absolute forefront. But also at home, you've got Vita Goldstone, who's seriously, steadily continuing the battle for women by showing, on a very pragmatic level, Mm -hmm. that women's votes actually matter. Mm -hmm. And that really, as much as anything, both here in Australia had made politicians stand up and take notice, the likes Mm -hmm. of Sir John Forrest, but also in the UK, this idea, hang on, there are votes to be had here and that's why we've really got to sit up well beyond any sort of great value-driven crusade
2: There are pragmatic Mm. realities about making this happen. The suffragettes liked to um, have a little bit of a smirk and a laugh uh, at how quickly the politicians who had been anti-suffrage soon did uh, a complete 360 and became the greatest advocates for suffrage once women's votes, once they were reliant (laughs) on women's votes to be voted back into their seats. so yeah, and the and the action in in the book in in, in that second two thirds of the book goes back and forwards between England and Australia. So the story is written on on these two sides of the world because we do have this movement where there are these Australian women who are going over and who are participating, as you say, as leaders in this incredible fight. And they're not just sort of they're not just. Um, uh, like rabble-rousing political um, campaigners, but, you know, we, I really think of them as statesmen mm-hmm. because they are kind of, they're ambassadors, they're de facto ambassadors for Australia because they are also taking Australia's international reputation forward and they are showing how things are done and particularly they they're showing forms of Australian ingenuity that they're very proud of as well. Like Muriel Matters with Mm her uh, chaining herself to the grill of parliament and having having to have the whole grill. Um, So the women's gallery in the House of Lords, which was way up in the heavens where women had to sit if they were going to to watch what was going on in their, effectively in their name, in their country. Um, And there was a metal grill that separated them from the parliamentarians below, ostensibly uh, so that the politicians wouldn't be distracted by the ladies while they went, got along with the important business of doing politics. But all women who sat behind it felt humiliated, particularly the Australian women who sat behind it, felt humiliated at having to be separated in this way. So Muriel stages this extraordinary act. And then, and then a few months later she hires uh, an airship, a balloon, it's and goes up in the air and starts shouting out votes for women <laughs> through a megaphone and drops 50 pounds of votes for women paraphernalia and leaflets, showers them down on London below her, <laughs> um, harnessing this new technology of flight this Before being forced down by poor weather. But that's that's right. she, did, she did end up in a hedge, but that's another story. And uh, not quite as went to plan. So Australian women were doing these things that were seen as being daring and risk-taking. Muriel Matters was a household name in Australia at the time and she was known as that daring Australian girl internationally. I, I'm flabbergasted that there hasn't been a, a, a biopic, and a, a film made about Muriel. She's just like such a candidate for a a feature film.
1: She is. She's quite extraordinary. But I'll throw this one out for those of you who are looking for an effective means of political campaigning. Dora Montefiore comes up with the idea of boycotting the
2: census. Yes. (laughs) So, I've got to say, Dora Montefiore is actually the woman I knew nothing about. when I started this, and she probably ended up becoming my favourite. I mean, Vida's always my favourite, because I've sort of been writing about her for 20 years now, and and she's kind of like a member of the family. But but Dora Montefiore became totally and utterly smitten with and fascinated by. And um, she, in fact, started the First Woman Suffrage Society in Sydney, when her husband died um, and she realised she didn't have custody of her own children. Mm. It wasn't an issue because nobody was trying to take them away from her, but she realised that if they did she would have nothing and and it politicised her and she started the first Women's Suffrage Society. She then went back to England where she had, had been born And um, she's a rabid socialist. Uh, She later becomes uh, represents Australia um, as a communist. Um, She's multilingual. She writes and speaks fluently in French and Russian, and she's a translator and an extraordinary Renaissance woman. And and one of the things that that she says, um, she takes the democratic um, motto, mantra, of no taxation without representation completely at its (laughs) word and says, right, well, in Australia, where I um, own property and pay tax, I can vote. So that's fine. But here in Britain, I pay tax and I get nothing for it. I don't get my vote. So you know what? You're not getting my tax. And so she stages a, a tax resistance and she, she walls herself up in her house. It's called the Siege of Hammersmith that lasts for six weeks <laughs> with the bailiffs trying to get in because by law, if you didn't pay your tax, the bailiffs could come in and, you know, take the glassware and the silverware and whatever furniture in order to auction it off to raise however much you wanted in tax. And so she didn't let them in. It was a, You know, these women were incredible heat-seeking publicity missiles. Mm. Um, and then, that was so so successful in raising poli- um, attention and, and publicity that she, in, in 1911, when Britain is taking the census, she decides to use the strategy um, again, but on a much broader scale. It gets taken up on a much broader scale. And there's a national boycott of the census where women are encouraged to just not be at home that night on census <laughs> night. And so you had this situation in England and Wales and and Scotland and mm. and and Ireland, of women and men who were supporting them. And there's a whole story we haven't talked about about male suffragists, um, but of them just wandering all over the streets Mm. all night, having parties, having skating parties, (laughs) having picnics, um, rich women lending out their mansions and having 250 suffragettes there, having these mass sleepovers, (laughs) Um, women who couldn't leave the house um, because they might have had children to look after or or whatever, writing sort of essentially donkey censusing and writing on their census forms, uh, no people here, only women. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and... And leaving the authorities, this is a fabulous bit, leaving the authorities to sort of scatter around and try and guess where everyone might have been. Sort of trying to
2: count people who are moving <laughs> targets.
1: Oh, it is fantastic. But, uh, Claire, just before we throw to the audience for questions, because, of course, there's all this wonderful, wonderful tumult, this brilliant fri- fight for freedom, but then war. And as you say at the end of the book, those legacies, the Anzac myth-making that even now, a a century later, more than ever, threatens to subsume these parts of our history and to blot out Muriel and Vida and and all the others. And my old friend David Heaton and I have often had this conversation that, as you say, far from Australia being born at Gallipoli, perhaps a whole other kind of Australia was actually lost. Mm -hmm. The the pre-war Australia of these vigorous, often radical political debates and... And that ferment of ideas, so perhaps that was that was lost on the fields mm. of Gallipoli mm. rather than the nation being born
2: it was, and, and you know I understand the the, the sentimental and the effective um, not effective, affective mm. reasons why uh, Australians are um, attached to the Gallipoli story, and you know, sixty thousand people being killed, um, young men being killed out of a, a small nation at the time. You know, it's it's a it's a huge wound, it's a huge grief, and it's a huge sacrifice. But the myth-making, the anti-historical uh, creation of national narratives that has come from that and been very heavily subsidised. I mean, this is the contemporary political aspects of it, that that, myth, that, that mythology has been very heavily um, subsidised by federal governments uh, and, a, and that the militarisation of Australian history Means that these other stories, as you say, they 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 just get blotted out. It's like it's like the Great Wall of Anzac, you know. You can't see over it or under it or around it. So so the other stories that are there to be told, and particularly this one that is that is so positive and so optimistic in so many ways, a time when Australia was proud of itself for being a progressive nation, um, that it felt that it held the solutions to the world's problems, and and that this idea of ourselves as a nation that could embolden us now, that could make us uh, more international risk takers on the world stage, that could lead us to find more more um, innovative solutions to modern ills, mm. like. You know, things that we might now consider to be what troubles the world the most in the way that the woman question did at this time. Um, You know, things like the refugee crisis Mm -hmm. and and climate change, Mm -hmm. the great moral questions of our age as women's enfranchisement was the great moral question of the turn of the century, that maybe we could find solutions and feel more emboldened and more confident of ourselves to do that if we had a sense of um, this heritage, of this, this democratic legacy, mm. of the people who fought so very hard for it at the time, men and women both. Mm. And, and
1: as you say very beautifully at the end, before the Sons of Empire died on a beach at Gallipoli and rebirthed a nation, we were the daughters of freedom and this was the story of us which made me a bit weepy when I read it, actually. <laughs> it's so beautifully expressed. Let's um, turn over to you for some questions. I, I hear lots of murmuring of agreement, so I'm confident we've got some questions in the room. And we'll go to you first and then f- further up. Yep. So, Yes, you're on.
3: Thank, thank you very much, Claire. It's so impressive what you've written. I've read one of your other books. I've only just bought your new book now, so I haven't read it. But I do thank you very much for what you've just said because I think it's tremendously important mm-hmm. that you're actually writing in this case about very vital thinking that women put forward and it's been suppressed. It's, we're just finding out about it now mm-hmm. through your book. Mm-hmm. No wonder we still haven't got gender equality in our parliament. We might have the right to vote and the right to stand, but, gee, there's not many who get Mm -hmm. up there Mm -hmm. to represent us. So would you like to expand on what you see happening now, in our parliaments, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) in the light of these wonderful things you said, the progressive thoughts and the the position
2: of equality for women? In 25 words or less. look it look it's it's been a very funny thing. Um, you don't write history because um, you think that it is going to have a contemporary resonance. Um, you know that you don't go looking to the archive to find answers to questions and and, and problems of today. The, you want to find solutions to. Because if you did that, you're not really writing history, you're really writing a manifesto or or a polemic and you're trying to to find quotes from the past to to buoy an argument. But it has been astonishing for me um, how relevant this book has become in light of the the debates that we're having about female representation in parliament, um, or more more particularly the lack of it, um, about lack of respect for the female politicians that we do have, about um, bullying and harassment um, of women in the workplace, about domestic violence, uh, about equal work for equal pay, the Me Too movement, Um, all of these things that do seem to be really at fever pitch at the moment are spoken to in one way or another by the book, Um, partly because so many of those things were issues that women at the time were fighting for. Equal pay for equal work was something that that these first-wave feminists we're fighting for. And they use that expression. We didn't just, like, invent that recently. Um, and as we know, we're still not there yet with that. Domestic violence was something that women at the time were hoping that if they had more of a grip on the political situation, they would be able to also have more control in their own homes. They wanted more control over their own bodies. At um, in, in that point in time, it actually meant the ability to not have to produce so many babies, to have more control over their reproductive Lives, Um, but and to not have you know to not have conjugal rights and a whole lot of other things, and um, that were about the politics of the bedroom essentially. These women were speaking to those issues at the time, and that their um, political empowerment was supposed to to get for them. and, and so, and then there is the issue of women in parliament themselves. I mean, Vita Goldstein, We didn't talk about this in, in the questioning, but Vieta Goldstein ran for parliament five times, unsuccessfully at each occasion, because she ran as an independent every every time. Um, she refused to join the Labor Party, um, and she would have gotten up easily if she joined the Labor Party, but she refused because she believed that if she did join um, uh, uh, the party system then her main objective, which was to get the, the needs and perspectives of women and children considered in all national legislation, would just be subsumed by the business of machine party machine politics. And she was probably right. Um, but it did also mean that sh- that she didn't get a seat. Now it's so interesting that we have women running as independents now. Mm-hmm. Um, that that Karen Phelps has just run as an independent. That we have Zali Stegall, um who is about to run against Tony Abbott, and seeing some of these same arguments um, about the fact that the work that women feel that they need to get done through our parliamentary system, they don't feel they can get done in parties, and so. You know, the parallels are are, are quite extraordinary. Um, I hope that at the end of the day, what having more knowledge of and hopefully therefore respect for the women of the past who have achieved extraordinary things does, helps to give more of a base for respecting women of today um, and the things that they are doing. If we understand that women have always achieved a great deal against the struggle, Hopefully it keeps women still struggling and that uh, it might seem a long bow um, but that that women will be will will garner more respect in general in our political and our civic life than they currently do. Mm. Next question. Yep. Yeah, hi. Um, look that's fascinating and I feel I could talk all night about this stuff. I just ask a really simple question in a way. You may not have sort of done the analysis to work this out. But I find it incredibly fascinating that it was Australia who took the lead. So do you have a, a sort of sense of, of, of why? Why, yeah, yeah. I, I have a strong feeling about that um, that comes out of, out of the archive. The archive gave me the answers on this one. And, and it's really um, this particular h- historical coincidence of this international movement for woman suffrage uh, that was being fought from you know, Budapest to Barcelona to the Australian Bush and, uh, and federation mm. and what was going on domestically in Australia, which was that uh, the colonies were working out how they were going to federate and become a nation. And in that, that, that process, everything was kind of up for grabs because they were because having to 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 write a constitution um, means that you have to work out who's got what power that's really what it what it's all about and women at the time who were uh, had already been fighting for these rights locally i mean women started putting up women's suffrage bills in victoria in the early 1880s um and then women start to become involved in the federation movement, as I was suggesting before. One woman, Catherine Helen Spence in South Australia, actually runs um, for the Constitutional Convention um, because by this stage, South Australia has given women the right to vote and the right to stand for parliament in 1894, and that's a very important um, pin in the, um, if you're sort of looking at it as a game of bowls, that, the fact that was like the kingpin, is that the kingpin at the front? I don't know bowling very well. <laughs> um, that when, once that one fell, that was the, the, the kind of trigger for these other... Um, the other colonies and and also for this wider process of women then working for federation. And so it was this convergence of international and domestic situations that made for a kind of perfect storm of feminism and federalism. Mm, yeah, politics, pragmatic politics mm.
1: had a reasonable amount to do with this. Perhaps one more quick question, if we've got another one. Uh, yep, we'll just go down to you in the middle. Um. Hi um, so I'm studying history and studying to be a history teacher mm-hmm. what I so I'm very aware of the wall of Anzac that is yeah. in our curriculum. Um, what do you think are some other forgotten moments of Australian history
2: and what do you think are some that are overemphasized?
1: <laughs>
2: um, yeah yeah I think we, we could all sort of put it, put our um, hats in the ring on on that one. Um, You know, it is something that that people who, uh, a a common um, feedback that I get from the book prior to this, The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka, after people have have read that, they very often said to me, look, it's so disturbing reading this book because I thought this was a story that we all knew and that we were taught in schools and, you know, ad, ad nauseum about Eureka. And yet here you've written like almost a complete alternative narrative to it which is about what women were doing which makes me wonder how many other stories we've been taught that we don't really know the full extent of so that's by way of saying two things one there's a whole bunch of stories that aren't being taught at all Um, and you know like our frontier history our colonial massacre history i mean that has to be the basis for any ongoing Um, discussion about who we are, where we've come from, and where we're going. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly, you know, if we're going to have what I hope is going to be within my lifetime, um, and I'm absolutely confident that it will be within my lifetime, that we are going to become a republic, we have to be a just republic, and that is going to involve a a truth and reconciliation process, And, and teaching Indigenous history and particularly frontier history to our kids is going to have to be part of that. So, <laughs> <laughs> on, on the one hand, there is going to be telling the stories we haven't heard before. On the other hand, there's going to be telling the stories we have heard before over and over again, from different angles and different perspectives, talking about all the characters who were there, um, and, uh, and 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 the, um, the you know the basically just more inclusive history in general. So Mm -hmm. we have had a particular range of voices that Mm -hmm. we have heard from and I think that that has to change and expand and enlarge. And and I think it will. Um, And this is one of the things that I love about being an historian and, and doing history. As I say when I talk to school groups, and just imagine all of you are under the age of 18, I say... I don't know what history is going to be written in the future because I don't know what questions you kids are going to ask. And that is how history is written. You know, my question in going back to the same archives that had been used for 150 years to write the history of Eureka, I went to the same archives, but I asked a different question, which is, were there women there, and if so, what were they doing? Mm -hmm. And therefore got a whole lot of different answers. So that question was relevant to me, in a way that it hadn't been relevant to Geoffrey Searle or Geoffrey Blaney or, or John Maloney or wonderful historians that had never thought to ask mm-hmm. that question. So I don't know what questions are going to be a- asked of the future, um, what's going to be relevant, um, and that's what makes it exciting mm. because the archive holds the answers. And it will be up to you, among others, to
1: ask those questions. Mm-hmm. Claire. what an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much indeed.
0: Thanks, <laughs> thank you. It's interesting. Um, here at the library we talk about collecting today what's going to be important into the future and I think that was just such a beautiful demonstration and I love coming along to these sessions. There's always something new to learn. So if you're interested in learning more and exploring more, we are the place to do it. Um, we have a wonderful collection of um, papers and ephemera about the suffragettes and I'm going to need Claire's help to make sure I pronounce Bessie's surname correctly. Rishby. I'm going to let the experts do that. We've got the (laughs) collection uh, which has um, papers from Vida Goldstein, Damien Ned Lyons, Sylvia Pankhurst, collection of photos, letters, medals, embroidered banners and cloths, and papers relating to the International Women's Suffrage Alliance and the UN. Mm -hmm. So that would be a a really fantastic thing to sort of dive into. Of special interest is the collection on the suffragette movement in um, England, which we've heard uh, about this evening from 1906 to 1928. Including Letitia Whittle's uh-huh. yep. yeah. Hunger Strike Medal and Louise Cullen's Holloway Prison Brooch, mm-hmm. which sounds very fascinating. We are fortunate they're part of the uh, National Library's collection here, and a great deal of it is actually available online thanks uh, to our sponsors. So you can dive into that and also look online. So we would encourage you to do that. We would also encourage you at this point to join us for refreshments upstairs. Uh, the bookshop has its usual 10% discount on, on goodies, particularly um, uh, Claire is available too. I think, can't you, to sign oh, yeah. books, etc., <laughs> and perhaps to ask some additional questions. So um, I've really enjoyed this evening and I very much hope you have. And thank you for coming to join us once again. And we look forward to seeing you at another event here at the library. And just finally, one last vote of thanks for a terrific session for All it. Right. Genevieve <laughs> thank you.